It's about time in a film nothing happened. What a brave choice a director made. What a, what a pioneer this guy is. Let's do nothing. Do you know anything about the art of film production? Well, I like to think so. Is this where I go to be a star? This is where you go to sacrifice, learn your craft, and work hard. Movies. Mm -hmm. Well, let's yeah. talk movies. Okay. Pick this up. Control sound. Roll camera. Speed. Dead. Walker. Welcome to Scene by Scene. This is a film discussion podcast where we break down story and technique from a filmmaker's and film lover's perspective. My name's Joe. And my name's Justin. In this episode, we'll be discussing Jafar Banahi's No Bears. Our discussion will be spoiler heavy, and you may find this discussion more engaging if you've seen the film before listening. I know this was one that you were excited for. Why didn't you tell us why? This was a film I, I was looking forward to for quite some time. I kind of felt the universe was like preventing me from going to see this. It had a limited run in our area. And by our area, I mean probably like an hour and a half away. It played in Chicago. There were multiple instances where it's like, hey, I'm going to make it down there to see this. And things just kept coming up. The last effort I made to go and see this. It was playing at the Gene Siskel in Chicago. I actually had bought my ticket to go see it. And as I'm driving down to Chicago to see this, there's a blizzard. As soon as I hit like the Milwaukee area, it's snowing sideways. I can't see. The weather report did say, hey, it's going to get worse. But I hit a point where I'm just like, I want to see this, but I also don't want to die. Sadly, I got south of Milwaukee. I turned around, came home, cried quite a bit, and here we are. Like, I, it finally happened. I felt like it was never going to happen, and it, and it happened. Panahi actually is a significant blind spot for me, and I think that No Bears brought him to my attention. You have a little bit more knowledge and experience with his films. Yeah, a little bit, not much more. I guess I first became aware of him maybe like 2011 2012 i remember seeing something in film comment magazine about this is not a film and them making a big deal about that film for good reason obviously it is the first of the films he made after being banned from making films for 20 years it is the film that he made while under house arrest obviously the film that started this phase of his career he was obviously experimenting with self-reflexive or, or sort of meta cinema before that. I did see that film. I liked it. I did see Taxi and liked that. But in preparation, I did watch his first feature, The White Balloon. I'm, I guess, a little bit more familiar with his later career, his banned films, and a little less familiar with the films that came before that. He's obviously a filmmaker that is worth discovering and worth watching and, and studying. And I plan to do that in the future. So I was just aware of No Bears existing, but like After Sun, I have to thank you for giving me the push to actually watch it in this decade. 
It's not that you're adverse to recent cinema. It's just not something that you necessarily seek out. I do think that part of this podcast is sort of a little bit of trying to get you to watch more modern films. But yeah, so this is the second film that we're going to have watched and discussed from 2022. The first was After Sun. You know, that was like my favorite film of the year. We'll kind of talk about where this one comes in. I will just hint that despite all of the weight and the hurdles, I wasn't disappointed. This lived up to what I hoped and actually became a little bit more than what I hoped. I think that kind of takes us into talking about like what this film is and trying to explain this story. نوار کردی چه خبره؟ آقای من دست بیریم مراسم مراسم چی؟ مراسم پاکشویانه چای گرانده ایچی دنه بروح داشت بار بیری قزه اتدالا سلداشون استنده اولاده اتدالا سقداشون استنده بلال اگه عوض اوسا یدی نمونم آقای من شما تو این روستا عشت سیرفتی عکس ازتون خواستم؟ آی مندس این اشته ما رو ریخته به هم این مازره همه ما رو پلت کرده دیگه داره دیگه با حق بدین یه کارگردان ممنون خروج اومده بس نشسته لب مرز هر لحظه ممکنی یکی ببینه آنتن باشه بره لو بده خب حالا دقیقا مرز کجاست؟ دقیقا رو مرز باشه شما دیشب رفتیم ساعت مرزی ما اینجا محلی هستیم نمیریم اونجا میترسیم بریم اونجا راه هم نیست پیش از تو آقا گام تو شرسن دروس و آقا اردوللن شو زنم کرادالا خریکیم دخیم کیم نزنم دهتون نیه کل شغلم نیه ازادیم نیه لقصانه ایدی پس ارسا چی؟ بابا خیرسی وجود نداره اینا به ما یاد داده اینجا خیرس هست I feel like the film was marketed as being this film about making a film. There's kind of this element, but I do feel like it's so much more. My description of this film is going to be, I'm going to say, poor at best because it is so layered. No Bears is two simultaneous stories that are happening, and it kind of uses this movie within a movie presentation where it's initially like set up that these two characters, Zara and Bakhtiar, are this couple who are trying to escape uh, Turkey, and that's like the movie that Jafar Panahi is directing from afar. Panahi is in this remote Iranian village, kind of like directing this film and struggling from a technological standpoint. So there's these scenes that occur that are basically the film that Panahi and Panahi's film crew is making. And then there's the film that's about Panahi making this film and his time and life in this village. I'm oversimplifying it. But I want to ask this question, Justin, because 
I feel like the film was like presented in its marketing as this film about film and about filmmaking. That's not what this film is, really. This film is an exploration of somebody trying to understand traditions and cultures that they're unfamiliar with. It's about small-town rural community and their way of life and how this outsider, one, is kind of forced and pulled into the drama, but also reflective of him being ostracized in his own ways. What was your takeaway as far as the story goes? It is about so much. I feel like we're going to leave stuff on the table with this discussion. I feel like it's about so much that, in a way, all of the ideas at times even contradict each other. And that's part of the point. I think the film as a whole is Banahi wrestling with and exploring all of these concerns or questions that he's sort of struggling with. I agree. Everything you said, I think, is true, but I think that's sort of the surface level. I think you could very much read all of his experiences with this small village as just a representation of his struggles with Iranian government as a whole. Yes. The way he feels persecuted by this village is the same way he's, not the same way, but sort of like a stand-in for how he's being persecuted by that regime. The one area that I do think it is sort of about film or filmmaking is I do think there is this element of Panahi being self-reflective and questioning whether it's worth continuing to make these films and what are the consequences of him continuing to work under these conditions. And we'll get into this, but the main thing being like we as viewers or we as audiences view everything that Jafar Panahi has been doing as very courageous. He's a true artist who won't let his very oppressive government stop him from making films. He's willing to risk his freedom and possibly his life to make his art. And we view that as something to admire about him. But there's this flip side in which he's potentially putting all of his collaborators at risk and putting them in dangerous situations and risking their freedom and their lives and him questioning, is it worth it? And I think we'll get into that a little bit more. What do you think? Yeah, I do agree with you. You know, you, you raise a, a lot of very good points. I think I may have not set that up very well. I meant it from the perspective of the trailer, the advertisement. It did feel like it was going to be just a film about filmmaking. It just ended up being a lot deeper and a lot more for me than what I even expected. It goes beyond it not being about making a film. It really doesn't even really show that that often. I think there's one scene in which that really is the idea, and it's that opening. There's the initial opening where we're introduced to these two characters, and then it's revealed that this is the scene he's directing. He's directing remotely from Iran while they're shooting in Turkey, and he gives this piece of direction to you know his assistant director and his actor how to adjust the take to make it better. And that's the only moment that it feels like, oh, this is about making a film and making a film when you're not on set. It's interesting in that moment, but I think at that point, that idea is sort of dropped. Even the moments that are the film within the film and the camera is representing Panahi's eyes, watching them shoot this scene. 
it becomes about more than the movie at that point. I think we need to just take a step back for a moment so that our listeners maybe who are unfamiliar with Panahi kind of understand why why this is happening, why the circumstances are what they are. I'll kind of like start on just a couple things. And Justin, I know that you want to probably talk about how Panahi got his start. Basically in like 2010, Panahi was arrested. He was convicted of assembly and colluding with the intention to commit crimes against the country's national security and propaganda against the Islamic Republic. Basically, he was arrested for documenting movements that were happening. He was quite outspoken himself. At that point, he was sentenced to six years of imprisonment and a 20-year ban from from making or directing any movies, writing screenplays, giving interviews to media, or leaving Iran. Uh, Justin, do you want to kind of talk about, though, how Panahi got his start? Because I actually thought that was quite interesting as well. Yeah, he started out making short documentaries, did a couple short fictional films. He got the attention of Abbas Kurastami, and Kurastami hired him as his assistant director, and the first film was Through the Olive Trees, and he actually appears in Through the Olive Trees as the assistant director. Kurastami with Panahi and a lot of other filmmakers from this time period is Kurastami was kind of a mentor for a lot of these young filmmakers at that time. It was actually Kurastami's idea or suggestion to Panahi to actually make a feature. Kurastami wrote the screenplay for Panahi's first feature, The White Balloon. And if you're familiar with Kurastami and then watch or explore Panahi's filmography, I think you can see a strong connection between the two of them. Both filmmakers were making films that had this sort of like metafiction element to them. They were self-referential. They were sort of self-reflexive films, not about filmmaking, but films about cinema, sort of the love of cinema, the power of cinema, and I suppose also the dangers of cinema. Both filmmakers focused on lower class citizens of Iran, both focused on child protagonists. I think both are deeply humanistic and compassionate filmmakers. The way that Panahi sort of separates himself from Kurastami is Panahi is more concerned about women's place in Iran, how this oppressive regime affects women. And I think Panahi is more overtly political than Kurastami ever really was. But I, I thought that was important to note because you see all of those things in this film, a compassion for the citizens of Iran, uh, a focus on how women specifically are being oppressed, and this idea of sort of like meta films about cinema kind of thing. Yeah, you just hit on one of, from my perspective, the biggest elements of this film is women. And Panahi has this interaction with this old woman, and she's explaining this tradition of, you know, when a girl is born, the umbilical cord is cut in the name of like a male. I found that and just like kind of how that story unfolds over the course of the film, which we'll talk about, just to be so interesting and for Panahi to make this such a key element in a country that does not treat women even remotely as equals. 
So yeah, I think that that history with Kurostami, I think that's important to kind of understanding what this film is. You had referenced him being arrested and his history with the government, but it's hard to talk about this film without acknowledging the fact that he was having more issues with the Iranian government. No Bears was completed in May of 2022. It was only a few months later, July of 2022, that Panahi was arrested. The story goes that another filmmaker had been arrested. So Panahi went to the prosecutor's office to get information. And uh, at that time, he was arrested. But February 1st of 2023, after a hunger strike, he was released 48 hours later. Tying it back to the film that we're here to discuss, No Bears, I mentioned Panahi was arrested July of 2022. No Bears didn't premiere until September 9th at the Venice Film Festival. I found this like just to be a really nice touch and really, you know, again, a focus on sort of this voice and acknowledging him and what he's trying to do under an oppressive regime. There was an empty seat that was left for Nahi at the press conference for No Bears at the Venice Film Festival. They state that it was done as an act of protest. Justin, one of the interesting things I found with this film, and then upon sort of diving further into his band films, is Panahi playing this fictional version of himself. You know, in this case, we see him kind of navigating this village. I guess, like, what was your feelings in regards to Panahi as the character in this village? So even as the film starts, there's this sort of acknowledgement that Panahi in this village is the outsider, is potentially either not entirely welcome or the citizens of this village are at least a little suspicious of why he's there in the first place. Everybody knows who he is. They know him as a filmmaker who's banned from leaving Iran and I guess the way they think of it, a filmmaker who's known for causing trouble. If a filmmaker's banned from leaving Iran and he's so close to the border of Iran and Turkey, there must be a reason he must be up to something. There is this sort of suspicion towards him. There is sort of this element of like paranoia. Even he himself isn't sure like who he can trust and all that kind of stuff. It's not really what the film is about, but it, it does kind of build out this world and, and kind of give it this feeling. I was going to bring this up when we talked about cinematography, but I'm actually going to just kind of dive right into it right now. It's very relevant to what you just said. One of the very early sequences that happens in this film is Panahi gives basically the renter of this location that Panahi's staying in this camera, and Panahi sets it to record and kind of explains how to record using this camera. The sequence plays out as he's walking kind of like through the village towards the ceremony. The camera shoots like the ground as he's walking, and things are out of focus. Uh, but what's happening in there is he made this mistake of recording when he shouldn't have been. And there's all these discussions going on about this guy being a spy and what's he doing here. 
you know, there's other moments of like world building. There's other moments that kind of like set up Panahi and and like the struggle and everything. But I thought that this was like just that moment that I'm like, I totally understand this circumstance, this situation. I know everything I need to know about this village. You know, you kind of get that like in other moments, but you totally get who Panahi's character is viewed as from the villagers' perspective. Yeah. There's not a lot of time with him in the village before he already gets in trouble, I guess. It's really the opening scene is this inciting incident, and he gives this guy his camera. He tells him, I can't go to the ceremony. He's invited to the ceremony, but he can't go. He's got to work. You know, this is after he's been trying to get a connection so he can connect to the crew in Turkey. And he, and he can't seem to get a, a strong connection. And so he gives this guy his camera, says, just record it for me. Panahi himself grabs his camera and begins taking photographs of the village. And he's photographing kids. And then there's this moment where he sort of turns and he takes a picture of something off screen. And we'll get into this a little bit more, but sort of this moment where he's just taking pictures and then he kind of goes on his day. His assistant director comes to drop off footage. They have this trip to the border and all this. But then when he comes back, he's immediately confronted with this idea that he took a picture of this couple together and they're not supposed to be together. It relates to the story you referenced in which the tradition in this village is that when a girl is born, her umbilical cord is cut in the name of a, a guy and that is who she's going to marry. And she has now started a relationship with someone other than the person she's supposed to be with. And Panahi has potentially photographed the two of them together. And so this is the moment where it becomes... I think about Panahi being persecuted for this perceived thing he's done wrong. This village represents Iran, and the photograph represents, in a way, Panahi's films or his filmmaking. The character's camera has gotten him into trouble by photographing something he wasn't supposed to photograph, just the same way the filmmaker, his camera has gotten him into trouble by making a film that the government perceives as propaganda against the government. This is the moment where it sort of becomes clear that this town is representing Iran and the photograph represents Panahi cinema and how it continues to sort of get him into trouble. This is where he begins to explore the idea that his filmmaking, his continued filmmaking, also has the potential to get other people in trouble. Because by photographing this couple, he is, I guess, putting more attention on them, putting them in risk. They now have to take the risk to flee Iran. By him pointing his camera, him putting his attention on that, that's only drawing more attention. And that representing all of the people that he potentially is also hurting with his cinema, it, whether it's his subjects, whether it's his collaborators. And so this whole story representing exactly what's, I guess, happening with Panahi's real life, but him finding a story that provides these opportunities for him to confront, I guess, these fears or these concerns that he's having. So I, I'm interested to get your take on this one. So do you feel like 
Panahi's questioning of circumstance and, you know, these concerns and fears, do you think that plays into why we never see that picture? In a way, he's been persecuted by the government by something that may or may not exist from a matter of perspective. So by not having that as like a physical picture or a picture that we ever actually see, it does call into question the outcry, the fear, the the conflicts that arise from this village. Yeah, I think like so much of this film, it means many different things, or it can mean many different things. The reason we never see the photograph, I think there's multiple reasons for that, or that means multiple things. What I do like about this, and what I think is interesting about this, is that at a certain point, there is a witness to this moment in which he took the photograph. The village brings in this kid to basically reenact this moment in which the photograph was allegedly taken. And what I think is interesting is that everything the kid says matches up perfectly with the way it is shown to the audience. You know, the kid says he took a picture of us, then he turned, took a picture of the couple, and then he turned and took another picture of us, which is exactly what happens. We see him take a picture of the kids, then turn take a picture of something off screen, and then turn back and take another picture of the kids. So it's not like this kid is lying, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's correct either. The idea that we never know who's actually right, we don't know who to believe. Panahi himself is adamant that the photo doesn't exist, but does it not exist because he never took the photo, or did he delete it? You know, there is that moment where he's driving back from the border, and the girl in the photo. She kind of runs up to his window and she says, like, if they see this photo that you allegedly took of us, there will be blood. And then he immediately goes home and he checks his camera. We don't know what he sees on his camera. Does he see the photograph and delete it? Does he not see the photograph? We don't know. I think that's the point, is we don't know who who we can believe and who we can trust here. I do think, going back to the fact that they made this kid reenact this event, is sort of part of what this film is about too, and how it relates back to the film within the film, in which Panahi is directing these two people to essentially recreate the moment in which they escaped. And it's supposed to be exactly the way it happened. And there's this element of whether cinema, this is how I see it, whether cinema is capable of being real. The idea that just because the camera sees it doesn't make it real, just because you're recreating or reenacting doesn't make it true. You're using the tools of cinema or you're, you know, I think of that moment where that opening scene where Panahi does actually, we do actually see him direct. And he says, like, if you start on him and you pan to her, you know, something about like it creates this idle frame and it destroys the rhythm and all this stuff, that's him creating. But that also, because they're recreating an event, those are the things that prevent it from being real. Uh, If I could kind of jump in on this, because I actually found that element of the film within a film to be the most compelling about that story. The film opens on the film within a film, and it's basically this, like, I want to say it's like something like seven minutes or so of an unbroken take And that is like the last time you see like anything that's within that play out in a complete sequence. And then everything else that happens in the film within a film, 
is generally like fragmented. You're seeing like these scenes that are kind of coming together from that narrative perspective, but you're not seeing the real life or the reality of what would actually be happening. Yeah, I agree. But I want to go back to why we don't see the photo. I also think there's an element of the village claims that there was a photo taken and Panahi himself claims that there never was a photo taken. The village continues to threaten him. There's these veiled threats. They're continuing to persecute him, but they're doing so over something that potentially doesn't even exist. So I think that's part of it too, is that the village, just like the Iranian government, is either so afraid or is just so oppressive in nature. They're willing to treat him this way over something that might not even be real, over this perceived threat that he poses over their traditions. Just the idea that it might exist is enough for them to do something about it. And I think that's part of the point, because I think that's what's happening in reality with this regime and the way filmmakers specifically are being censored. It's all about what they perceive the threat is, whether there really is a threat or not. Tying this back to the Iranian government, like the traditions, there's a few times where he's questioning the villagers in regards to like the traditions, like, why is this? Why is this? And even when it comes down to one of the later scenes, he goes to basically like this confession. He says he's basically there out of respect, but he doesn't understand these traditions and he kind of calls them into question and challenges them. It's really interesting to me me that Panahi sort of uses the village in this way. I think in a way in that scene, he's like really on the nose about what it is. But also, I don't think it takes away from that moment either. I think that's exactly what that moment needed to be. They take away the Quran and he basically makes his confession to the camera. For Panahi as a filmmaker, to him, that's more like vital than the Quran. I think that's absolutely what it is. This is where this gets so complicated is because in I think I see someone wrestling with these ideas. I think there's elements where it's like, these are my words, obviously, but is it worth it? Is it worth it to keep making films if this is how I have to do it? This is what's happening as a result. These are the people that are being negatively affected or affected in any way. Is it still worth it? Am I making a mistake by continuing to make these films? But at the same time, he believes so much in the power of cinema. And he puts all of his sort of faith in cinema that it's more important that he photographs this moment than it is that he swears to the Quran. I mean, the whole idea is that he's supposed to swear to God and they place the Quran out, that he is telling the truth and that he never took the photograph. And instead of swearing to God and swearing to the Quran, he swears to his camera and to cinema. And that's what's important to him. So that's the way it contradicts itself, or that's the way you see someone wrestling with the idea. But I also feel like that kind of positioned with Zara's meltdown, where she takes off the wig and highlights the fictional nature of what's happening. Stop 
زیر بار زندان و شکنجا دووم موردم که فقط خودم باشم حالا اینجا مفت و مجانی تبدیل شدم به یه آدم دیگه It does also like create this or at least furthers the question of did the photo exist or not because cinema can be falsehoods. To Panahi's confession, you know, it is this question of he's confessing that he didn't take the photo more out of the hopeful nature of this response versus a truthful acknowledgement. Again, I think that this can be open to interpretation. Well, there's also this idea that like, even if cinema is documentary and you're just documenting, the moment you point a camera at something, that event is altered in some way. In a way, it becomes a falsehood. Yeah. Every time one of these new wave Iranian filmmakers makes a film that is about cinema, you know, whether it's a film crew making a film or whether you see the film crew in the film or whatever it is, I feel like that's what they're trying to point out. That's what they're commenting on or questioning is this idea of, is it possible to make a film that is real or is actually documenting reality? So what I'm saying is I think Panahi has been exploring this idea with the last couple films he's made and even some earlier in his career, but it's also very much present in this film again. So I think that means that he's yet to discover the answer that makes sense to him because he keeps exploring it. He keeps trying to understand it better. Do you have anything else to add about this, the idea of the photo or how the, the village treats him over the photo? Not specifically about that. I, I do feel like we've covered a lot of the examination of the village and how the village views Panahi, the photograph. We've talked a, a bit about the history of Panahi sort of challenging the Iranian government when it comes to the treatment of women. It is very early on. You know, we establish Zara in that first scene Even though she's not in it very frequently, I feel like she is a very strong female character. The first time I experienced Zara, you kind of see her struggle, but you also get a sense of who she is from the perspective of she doesn't want to leave Bakhtir alone. She has her convictions, and she's willing to stay if that results in being with Bakhtir. As the film progresses, you more understanding of her history, I think that she's given one of the most powerful moments of the film. I bring her up, you know, talking about Panahi's focus on women and the equal treatment of women in Iran. But then we follow that up with this discussion that I've brought up before, Panahi talking to this old woman who's making him dinner, you know, she's explaining this ceremony and how they would go down to this river and if a boy grabbed her veil, basically she was betrothed to the man and she didn't have any say in it. And then kind of transitioning that to this umbilical cord cutting. It's one of the fascinating things about the film within the film and how Zara eventually calls out Panahi for creating this fictitious world almost. Panahi's experiencing 
the exact opposite of, I think, what he's kind of communicating. But it's also this question like Panahi raises. Again, I do feel like this is clearly Panahi questioning the government, the government's treatment and focus on women. For the foot washing ceremony that's taking place, why is the woman on the left? The old woman responds with, well, basically, I don't know. That's just how it is. I found just like the start of this film to be very fascinating. The way that these two scenes, albeit very separate, really do communicate similar ideology and the fictitious nature versus the reality. If you're you're thinking about that, you have to kind of look at how easy it would have been for Zara to leave in that moment. And then sort of the outcome for the the woman in who was potentially photographed and him as well the boy in that photograph just how i guess violent the real thing is you know how violent the reality is versus how easy it could have been for zara does that make sense and just highlighting you know maybe the differences between the way filmmakers or the way panahi represents escaping or leaving Iran and sort of how it usually plays out. And I think this can kind of relate to, you know, Panahi himself. I think we'll get into this discussion about when he's at the border, why he reacts the way he acts. But there being this idea that Jafar Panahi, if he really wanted to leave Iran, his experiences leaving would be much different from the average person. And the average person represents what is reality. And Jafar Panahi's experiences represent sort of the outlier, the fiction, you know, the thing that is not normal. Does that make sense? Just highlighting how the film is potentially not real or is questioning how close to reality it can possibly be. There's an important scene that you've touched on here. Reza, who's Panahi's assistant director on the film within a film, basically takes Panahi to the border between Turkey and Iran, but they do so through kind of nefarious means. You know, there's like smugglers and this road that leads out of the country. The border's right there, and Reza's trying to convince Panahi to cross the border go into Turkey so Panahi can actually be with the film crew and, you know, actually work on the movie directly with them. Panahi asks Reza, where is the border? And Reza responds, you're standing on it. Panahi kind of gives this, like, horrified look and he, like, steps backwards. It's like an instinct, like instinctually. So I I think that this is like a moment where how we interpret this could change and vary. Personally, for me, I read this as a moment where Panahi is like committed to Iran, regardless of like the persecution, regardless of like the restrictions that are put on him as, you know, a filmmaker and as an artist, it is his home. And even though he has critiques and challenges with the regime, he's not willing to to leave it. I think in that moment, Panahi's character is demonstrating a commitment to where he is, when it would just be easy to walk away from it. I agree with you. Panahi is committed to Iran. 
But this is, I think, another one of these elements where he's questioning it. You know, just like he's questioning, is it worth continuing to make films? He's questioning, is it worth it to stay here? So many characters have little lines that hint at this idea. The character of Panahi in the film is very much like, I'm not leaving, even though they show how easy it is. But then Zara, in that sort of monologue towards the end of the film, discusses leaving, discusses, you know, she says, like, why should I leave? And what about the people I'm leaving behind? So this idea that you're potentially leaving your family or even just your fellow citizens, if if I leave, what's going to happen to them? But then even like the last lines of dialogue in the film, he's leaving and he comes across the couple who've been killed. The guy who's renting him the room stops him and he's like, you, you know, you need to leave. You need to leave kind of thing. And he's kind of repeating this and, um, you know, you should leave now. I think these are direct references. He's saying it in that moment. He's saying you need to leave the village. But what it really represents is like, you need to leave Iran. This is the wrestling. It's like, no, I'm committed to Iran. I'm not going to cross the border into Turkey, even just temporarily. But then also, I feel like I need to leave. And so he's debating, maybe I should leave. Is it worth it to stay here? You know, I could leave and make films elsewhere, but then I would be abandoning my country, what I believe in, my fellow citizens, you know, what I've been fighting for. You're you're potentially abandoning all that. I think that there's this great moment, and it's actually the last shot of the movie. Panahi's like stopped and parked after leaving the village. You hear him basically like put the car in park. And the camera just like hangs on him and you can just feel that contemplation in that moment. Again, this is a fictional version of Panahi in this film. He's saying a lot of things that I'm sure like Jafar Panahi wants to say, but this is a fictional version of him. And you just feel in that moment, there is more of a contemplation of the border is still right here you know, should I go? Should I stay? And you're not given any answers to that. We talk about films and I like to use the term stuck the landing. And I think that stuck the landing. I think Iranian films and Panahi is included in this. They utilize this ambiguous ending or this very open-ended ending in which the film is over, but it ends in a place where it invites the viewer to like in- interpret what happens next. It's not truly over. And in this case, it's like it's not truly over for Panahi, but it's also not truly over for everybody living in Iran. The movie's over, but the story's not over. But this idea of staying, it does make me think of Jafar Panahi, the real person. You know, he's someone who has global support. And he's someone who, he was also banned from making films for 20 years, yet he's made several films in that period. We act like because he's been banned from leaving Iran that he can't actually leave. And I think this film shows that like it's not about him not being able to. It's not about him not doing so out of the fear of consequences. It's more about what that would mean to him if he left. And I remember, so like recently he was released from from jail 
And then he left Iran with his wife for the first time in like 14 years after the travel ban was lifted. And I remember seeing a lot of people commenting like on social media, like, oh, this is so exciting, but I suggest he never return outsiders who have no real understanding of what's going on. But they're commenting like, now he's escaped. My suggestion is don't ever return. But these people are, I think, missing the point. It was never that he couldn't. It was that he didn't want to. Exactly. And you highlighted it perfectly. Like, he's making a decision. And in a way, while some may question this decision, that is probably the most commendable and respectable thing. He is committed to his country. He's committed to his beliefs and ideology. While it is easier to cross that border, leave, go to Turkey, flee, he believes in his country, despite all the reasons not to, that he stays. This is in relation to, you know, what he's leaving behind or what he's ab- abandoning if he did leave. And then also related to his belief and his love in cinema. And so I just want to read a quote from him. And this is taken from the politics of Iranian cinema, film, and society in the Islamic Republic. When people like me do these things, we know what position we are in. We are recognized around the world, and so the authorities cannot pressure us too much. If something happens to us, it will be reported everywhere and even here in Iran. We have to risk pushing the limits for those kids who are just starting off. Those who are making their first films are forced to do whatever they are told. They allow the censors to mutilate their films. If we do not stand up to the censors, the conditions will be worse for the young filmmakers. This would mean that this cinema would not continue. It would be suppressed and end with the few people who make films now. A cinema can survive if it has new filmmakers and makes new films. If we don't resist, the path will be blocked for new filmmakers, and therefore, in the eyes of the next generation, we will be responsible. There is no other way. So I also think he feels like, as an example, if he went to France and started making films where he has all of this freedom, and now he also has access to all these resources, he could do that and his films potentially would benefit from that. But he would no longer be making Iranian films. He would no longer be an Iranian filmmaker in the sense that, like he said, he would not be fighting for fellow Iranian filmmakers. So the fear is that if he abandoned Iran, he would also potentially be abandoning everything we've already talked about, everything you've said, but he would also be abandoning what is possible for art in Iran and Iranian filmmakers in the future. I do feel like this is a discussion that we should revisit when it comes to takeaways as filmmakers. I wanted to get your thoughts on what becomes of the two lovers, Gozal and Solduz. Even though it feels very straightforward, I do feel like there's a level of ambiguity to this. Panahi, well, you don't know what I'm about to say. Oh, I, I think I do. <laughs> well, I have two things. So, okay. So there's the question of whether Panahi really had any effect, I think, on this couple. They were together regardless of Panahi. They were, I guess, seen together. I mean, people are saying, I witnessed Panahi take the photo of these two, which means the village has seen them together. So the question is, like, did Panahi really cause 
any of these problems for this couple. And I think that's up for debate. I think that's part of the point is him questioning, you know, am I putting people in dangerous positions or are they going to be in dangerous positions just because of where they live or their decisions? Or their decisions. The guy comes to Panahi in the middle of the night one night. Vale. It's like, you know, you just can't show the picture for a week because we're going to elope and we're going to escape. Was that a decision that they had already made? Or was that a decision as a result of word going around the village that there's a photo of them? You know, we don't know. Them deciding to escape. And the story is that they were trying to cross the border and got shot and killed. Were they doing that because of all this pressure and all this talk about the photo? Maybe, maybe not. You know, maybe the outcome would have been the same regardless of Panahi. But again, the fact that that is a question, I think, is Panahi wrestling with these ideas of, you know, his actions and how they affect other people. But the other thing about the ending is the question of the narrative that is told is that they were killed trying to cross the border. But there's also the possibility that the village and the villagers killed them. And that would be not about trying to leave Iran and not crossing the border, but more about them trying to go against these traditions and creating problems in that way. And because of that, they needed to die which aligns with what the Iranian regime in reality has been doing. They have been executing people for not falling in line like they're supposed to. So I think there's a question of, can you believe the story being told? Was it about leaving or was it about not following the traditions? Those are the way I feel like the ending is open to interpretation or is ambiguous intentionally. Did I hit on the ideas that you were thinking of? Yeah, actually, I want to spend a little bit of time on the very last one that you have here. To me, there's this element of propaganda as well. Now, it's not incredibly overt, but there's that statement that the guy that uh, Panahi was renting the room said how they were shot trying to cross the border and then they dragged themselves back. Like in that moment, it's just like chaos and like frenzy and he's just telling Panahi to go. But that is just like a very questionable explanation of what happened. And it does create this, well, these are the lies that the establishment would try to sell you, even though there's reason to believe that's not what actually happened. Based off of the scene, from my perspective, it was pretty clear that something else happened. The other thing I found interesting was... How very early in the film we're introduced to the feet washing ceremony in this like stream or shallow pond, and there's jubilation. It's exciting. Everybody's like really happy. And then we close on this dead body there, and people are standing over shouting and. (laughs) 
We've gone from this very exciting moment to anger and like a feeling of like hatred and and resentment and just how things can like be thrown from that positive, the excitement to anger and vitriol. Very early in this episode, I touched on the expectation of this film within a film or this film about film. And that is here. It is present. I will say, even though from my perspective, that's less what the film is about rather than other elements that I think we agree on are probably more prevalent. No Bears does an excellent job of crafting that film within a film. You can tell that there is a tension that was paid to that. For a lesser filmmaker, this would have been something that would have been easily just dismissed or maybe corners were cut from a technical perspective. Or, or But you can tell that there still was a lot of care that went into this. One of the things that I thought Panahi did really well, though, as the film within the film starts to kind of blur the lines, I notice how the look of the film within a film, even though it it remains, you know, still a little like crisp, a little bit more colorful, you have more movement. Some of like that village look starts to seep in, colors get a little bit more muted, or at least there's less frequent use of like the brighter colors. We haven't talked about the fate that befalls uh, Zara. It's eventually revealed that Zara has died, and it's heavily implied that she committed suicide. The scene that precedes this was Bakhtiar sort of talking about their history and how she's had suicide attempts, due in part due to like the torture and things that she's previously experienced. We start the film with sort of this like bright, colorful kind of like landscape. And the last time we're in the world of the film within the film, it's when it's revealed that Zara has died. In that moment, it feels very colorless the way that a lot of the scenes in the village sort of look. I thought that was just like excellent filmmaking where you see the village kind of like seep into this film within a film. I just want to set the stage for this discussion. Just acknowledge that the look of the film is so much based around limitations. The limitations he has as a filmmaker because of how he's making films and how technology has made it possible. I mean, there would there would be no way for him to do this even just 20 years ago. The quality of digital cameras and being able to direct remotely is something that makes this film possible. And even within that, I look at the night scenes as an example of of seeing like he's not working with the best cameras. He's shooting low light which you know, makes sense given the limitations he has, and also it fits within the story. But because he's using practicals or natural light, and he's using not top-of-the-line pro cameras, there is noise, there is a bit of muddiness. The turkey stuff is shot in Turkey. He is not present for the directing of those scenes. He is relying on someone else, and he is directing remotely. Mina Gavani the actress who plays Zara, had expressed that when she was cast in this film, 
that she was nervous and she was frustrated with the idea that her director would not be on set. All the actors in the world, no matter what is their nationality and what, where they come from, the only the first thing that we we're looking for is the way that the, the director looking to us. All the actors they looking for that, and. When I was in Turkey, I was very obsessed and frustrated about the idea that my director, he's not there. And I was very emotional and very sad about this idea. But what is very interesting is that uh, when he started to directing us through the uh, Zoom or WhatsApp, I don't know, whatever the application was, it was very impressive because he wasn't there. But he was totally there, and 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 he was in a, such a concentration on his work, on his what he, what he, what he wanted to get, get get from his actress, from his cameraman, from the scene, from that you know it was like that. I I was like, okay, Mina, don't be emotional, don't 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 fall in sentimental mood, and just be concentrate and just doing your job. And so, the point being, you know, without video conferencing software, without our current internet speeds he could not make this film the way he's making this film i think honestly this is a very good looking film you talked about like some of the night scenes and the one in particular when panahi and his ad are out near the border i think one of the things that works for me so much is how natural and gritty that does feel I guess this is the advantage of him making a story that is so closely aligned with his real life is that if he's shooting a scene in which he, you know, is sneaking around at night or around the Iranian Turkey border and he's shooting it like he's sneaking around the Iranian Turkey border with little equipment and no lighting and as a result has sort of a noisy muddy image that fits the story that is appropriate for the scene and the story some people can look at it and say it's unappealing i look at that and i'm like this is speaking to this section of the story yeah out of context you just show somebody an image of that they're going to say well that's bad filmmaking that's ugly that's this or that I actually kind of appreciated some of the noise because I do feel like it's it's serving that. I brought it up acknowledging that it is partly the product of limitations, but not that it needs to be forgiven. It actually, I think what you're saying, it enhances those moments. So the opening, I think, is a good representation of how Panahi in the village versus the film that he's making differ. And like you said, the film within the film does change as the film progresses. But that first scene, there's like a hidden cut there when we transition from the movie to Jafar Panahi in the village. But in one shot, he shows two different styles to represent the two different storylines. So we start in the film within a film, although we don't necessarily know that's the case when it first starts. Uh, we're shooting down sort of a city street, people are walking by. And the camera pans almost 360 over the course of the entire scene, but we reveal Nozara working in a cafe, 
Bakhtiar coming with the passport. They have a conversation. The way this shows the difference is that there's movement in both parts of the scene. The part that's the film within the film is this more sort of formal, structured pan. It's choreographed to move to this place at this time. And, you know, then the moment where Raza steps in and starts talking to Banahi. Cut. It's revealed that, like, this is what's being photographed for the film, and Banahi's directing remotely. The camera sort of pulls back, and we reveal him looking at his laptop as that initial shot becomes footage on his laptop. And then, you know, we have the scene in which reception is lost. Panahi begins going around trying to get a strong connection. The first part has this choreographed camera move with what feels like actors being blocked. And then when we're into the village, there's still camera movement, but the camera movement is less choreographed and feels more about just following the characters. It's these long takes in which it's far less formal and more about just keeping up with the characters as they move through their environment. It's more documentary style. And I would say then we get very long static takes in the village, but we still get movement, but the movement is just different. One feels choreographed and one feels spontaneous. Um, I think what's interesting is that opening scene that turns out to be the film within the film, that shot, very much resembles the opening of The White Balloon, which is a similar situation in which we open in a street. It's it's far more packed in that version. Lots of people moving through, but it just pans around searching for the protagonist of the film, which I think is interesting. And, and I wonder if it is sort of referencing his own work and maybe pointing out the fact that his previous work was more theatrical, more reliant on the tools of cinema, and as a result was less real than what he's currently, the, the current period in which he's working. So it's like a, a filmmaker critiquing their past work in a way. What is striking is that he can adapt or adopt two different styles to fit what he is trying to convey. You know, you you touched on it, but just so easily transition between those and like really, in a way, seamlessly too. But even beyond that, eventually getting to the point where they become almost like married up, some of those elements like seep into each other. Because I do feel like at points, some of the artificial world of the film within the film start to also creep into the village. If you look at the blocking to go with the camera move, in that film, there's this continuous pan, but there's also what I said was like choreographed action or blocking because the characters are like sort of always moving. You know, she goes down the steps to meet him. They have a bit of a conversation where they're, where they're stationary, but then she leaves, he follows her. You know, it just feels like the way actors are blocked in movies. You know, there's this movement to keep it dynamic and interesting. When we transition to the village, Panahi's moving around the house to find reception, but he goes outside. And then when he starts to interact with other people in the village, 
the camera just holds. Then it's the two actors just standing there for long periods of time having a conversation. And so it no longer feels like movie blocking. It feels like they move to get where they need to go. And once they're where they need to go, they stop moving and they stand. And they can stand in one place and have conversations for long periods of time. You know, the concern is not to be interesting or, you know, cinematic or whatever word you want to use. It's just about practicality versus what we have become used to in movies. So the blocking and the camera movement go hand in hand in that way. Can I ask your opinion on this opening scene? Because I actually was I was a little hesitant and a little concerned initially because it had that really like theatrical kind of look to it and and it really felt like very artificial. So up until kind of the reveal of this is Panahi watching the screen, I'll say that the film didn't like have the best first impression with me because of it. And I had this like concern of if this is how this looks and how the blocking is very stagey, I I don't think I was going to appreciate it nearly as much as I ended up liking it. So what was like your feeling with the film sort of like starting out that way and that being the introduction? I got the impression that there's something off here. I felt like, okay, there's something not natural about this or not real about this immediately. I knew there was something going on that wasn't what it appeared to be. I don't know if that requires being more familiar with his other work and then seeing that scene and knowing it doesn't necessarily fit with his style and coming to a conclusion based on that. Clearly, I mean, you felt that too, that something isn't right here. And maybe your initial thought was, oh, I hope this isn't what the movie is. I guess I would be curious, you know, what other people's opinions on that are, if everybody gets that sense. You know, we've we've talked about limitations that Panahi has. This has come up, I think, it is something that I like and, and part of the style that I really gravitate towards. A lot of patience with allowing scenes or exchanges to, to kind of play out. I touched on it earlier, but the scene where Panahi's interacting with the old woman who's cooking and and feeding him, and just the decision to allow this whole sequence to play out as this like wide two shot of them. So it's just things like this that I love the restraint. There's not a lot happening other than just like the dialogue and just the conversation. What's happening in these scenes is interesting and captivating enough that I am just focused on on what that conversation is. When there is no cut, a lot of the time it can draw you in to the conversation even more because you know, there is something that has to grab your attention. And a lot of the time, if it is very cutty, your attention is either focused on the cuts or your attention is constantly being pulled away from something else and and sort of drawn to the cuts. As an example, if you're trying to listen to a conversation and you're kind of wrapped up in that conversation, and then there is a lot of alternating close-ups as an example, those cuts can kind of distract you. I don't know if everybody feels that, but I do think that exists to a certain degree. You know, I've always talked about how I like long wides 
because it allows me to scan the frame and focus on what I like to focus on as the viewer. I can choose where to look. I can choose what details are important to me. In a film like this, where it's two actors sitting down with not a lot of actor business, the older woman is cooking and Panahi has his camera and at one point tries to take a picture of her. And so there's a little bit of actor business, but for the most part, they're kind of just sitting there, not doing anything. And they're in this corner where there's like a, a white, gray, tan wall or whatever it is. And so, you know, there's not maybe a lot to look at in this scene. So then your your focus goes to what they're saying and how they're saying it. I think that's another benefit of shooting something like this. I did appreciate a lot of the long takes, a lot of the what feels like sort of a tableau approach in which long takes covering actors standing still having a conversation. And, you know, there's not a concern for getting different angles, but there's also not a concern for keeping the frame dynamic with blocking or anything like that. It, it really is almost, at times, like a still photograph. There's a scene that plays out that we start on a simple two-shot, and it's when Panahi has gone to the sheriff, and it's conversation going on between the sheriff and Panahi about this picture that Panahi may or may not have taken. What worked so well for me in this scene is like the majority of this like goes on in a two-shot until we hit a point where the sheriff like challenges Panahi a little bit, and we kind of get more of an insight of what the sheriff is really after in this scene. And that's when we cut into close-ups. I bring this up because we talk about coverage. I think from a filmmaker perspective, there's like the traditional way of, okay, well, I'm going to get all this coverage so that way we have like something to cut. We talk about pacing, what's being communicated in a scene, in a shot, what does the edit communicate? I thought in this moment, this is exactly what the scene needed going from that to where there's like pleasantry and just like general discussion to here's what it's really about into a close-up, into the opposite close-up. I think there's two concepts at play here. And one is save your close-up. You know, don't overuse the close-up because, you know, then the moment when you actually need it for whatever reason, you know, let's just say it's to to show the emotion that a character is feeling. If you're using close-ups in the entire scene preceding that, that close-up is going to lose its power. You know, don't overuse your close-ups or save your close-ups until they're needed. The other concept is this concept of the moment of change. A scene will start out about one thing, but as two characters talk, it'll slowly transition or be revealed that the scene is actually about something else. And in that moment of change from what you think the scene is to what it actually is or what it was to what it now is, you change some piece of filmmaking to emphasize it, highlight it, whatever. So this is an example. You know, you'll start in a two shot and then as the scene becomes about something else, that's your moment of change. You'll change your filmmaking style. You'll cut to the close-ups. You know, when we talk about editing, I think we've talked about a lot of films in which we've praised not cutting at all or the long take. This is another concept that 
results in good editing, but you don't see it as often as you probably should. What else jumped out or stood out to you regarding the editing? I know we've we've touched on a couple things already. The way I would think of the editing in this film, and tell me if you disagree, is that what feels like a sort of a core principle is like cut when you need to cut and then don't cut when you don't need to cut. I think about that because the first 15, 16 minutes of the film, there's like four cuts. And one of them is like a hitting cut. It's not really visible. That's like four minutes a shot for like the first 15, 16 minutes of the film. I mean, that goes beyond just letting a film breathe and, and having a slower pace. I think the concept is like if your scene can be photographed in one shot and there's no reason to cut, then why should you cut? There are a lot of scenes that feel like the only time it cuts is when we're on to the next scene. It's a thing of kind of like how do you define a scene too? Because in the beginning of the film, there is that moment where he's talking with the guy who's rented him the room. They've gotten the ladder. They're trying to get a connection. He goes in, grabs the camera, gives him the camera, shows him how to use the camera. Panahi goes back inside, grabs his camera. You know, that's a scene. Panahi watches as he, you know, walks to the feet washing ceremony, holding the camera, and there's other people walking too. But then Panahi walks what would be out of frame, but the camera sort of follows him. And then we get the scene in which Panahi is taking photos of the town and taking photos of the people in the town, which feels like a completely different scene. But there hasn't been a cut. In a way, there's even moments where two scenes can play out in, in one shot. If the location allows it and you're blocking this way, you could cut, but there's not necessarily a need to. And if there's no need to, then why do it? What are your feelings on the scene in which Panahi and Raza, his assistant director, are in the car? and they're traveling to the border. And we're essentially getting, I guess, three setups. We, we have a close-up of Panahi, close-up of Raza, and then occasionally POVs, shots of the road. I think that shooting in cars is always a challenge with fewer restrictions than Panahi has. I thought they worked well within the limitations. I appreciate the fact that so many times you watch a film and the single is just used for the person talking. That's all it is. It's the dialogue delivery shot. What I liked about this, there was a lot more reaction. You see like Panahi's reaction to what Raza's saying and vice versa. It does feel like there is a lot of like alternating shots and a lot of cutting more so than anything we've seen before it. And you touched on part of it. I do think there is an element of limitations driving that decision as an alternative. You could have been in the back seat maybe and shoot through to the front and you get maybe you know, two shot, but you know, you're getting just three fourths sort of of their back. I don't necessarily think that works as well in this situation. You, normally you'd see is they would have some sort of car rig where you can get a two shot as they drive. Obviously that's not possible on the films he's making. So you're kind of left with alternating close-ups. But I also think it's about building tension in this moment and drawing these moments out. The way you talked about there being 
reaction shots, shots of the road and everything, it is actually extending that time. If it was just a two-shot, of course, the performances would control the pace of the scene, but I think it would happen maybe more in real time. With the ability to edit alternating close-ups, you can sort of extend certain moments and draw out certain moments, and obviously that's the power of editing is you have control over the rhythm. But I think that's important in this moment because this is the moment where, for the first time, you feel like Panahi is potentially in danger at risk, or he's putting himself at risk by putting himself in a position he shouldn't be in. There's also subtly this moment where we don't really know this other character. And there's a question of like, because there is sort of this underlying suspense or sort of tension or paranoia or whatever it is, can we trust this guy? Even the way that he comes into contact with Panahi almost feels sort of nefarious. Like, sure, he's introduced in that video that Panahi's like streaming, but he just kind of randomly shows up. You don't really see him. You get like the dog barking, kind of like a, a warning sign. Like the next time we see him, he's on the side of the road. It is just like a whole bunch of really questionable elements. So I think in a way, like the way that Raza is shot, the way that we kind of cut around him, I think does kind of lend itself to questioning him and his relationship with Panahi. And that rhythm and that cutting, I think, does work to create this tension and the suspense and almost like where is this going what's going to happen in a way that as an example long take two shot which is sort of in line with what we had seen previously in the film just wouldn't work and it's the same thing when they go up to the border too i think getting you know a single of both characters and then you know the moment in which she's like you're standing on the border and we get that, I guess, insert of him stepping back and like sort of stumbling too. Those things go to creating that suspense that a wide long take wouldn't. This is just another example of, you know, maybe Panahi favoring the long take, the static long take, but knowing when to break that for dramatic effect or emotional effect. You know, real quick mini rant. I think films like this don't get a lot of credit for good editing. I think people associate good editing with lots of editing, the most editing, but editing is so much more than just when to cut or how to cut, it's also when not to cut. So I think this film is really well edited. I think the moments that he disrupts the not cutting pattern are done so for a specific reason, not just to cut. That wasn't that bad of a rant. I was I was expecting worse. So do you have any thoughts on Panahi's performance? And again, like we've kind of mentioned this based off of the filmmaking ban and how he's kind of like created this Panahi character. 
that he appears as in his own films. You know, thoughts on on his performance in this one? Maybe this makes sense because he's not an actor first, but he does have this sort of like non-actor quality to him, which I think is present in the village section overall in certain characters and his other films. And I think that's part of the appeal of his films. And it's like this uh, so non-actor thing, but then also maybe this very stoic personality he doesn't let even all of this pressure from the village really get him too emotional or angry or sort of riled up. He kind of is always sort of calm and under control. But I really liked him in this. What are your feelings on his performance? Yeah, I'll agree with one of the big things that you said there. Clearly, as a director, you need to know how to work with actors. You need to be able to work with actors. So I think some of that does kind of like carry over for him. And I think that works to his benefit. But I thought his performance was quite strong. There are moments where... I think instinctively you would expect an actor to demonstrate certain characteristics or certain behaviors. Traditionally, I I think that if it were a, a true actor cast in this role, some of their instincts would be to respond certain ways, you know, utilize certain inflections. I appreciated how even Panahi's performance was throughout. You kind of talked about it. At no point did his character ever come across like overly excited or, you know, even when he was like challenged, he was very reserved. I don't think it's until the very end and that sort of like the chaos of him leaving and seeing the dead body. I think that was like the most performance that he gives. I don't mean that as like a a negative. It was just like one of the biggest moments that you get from him. The other like moment that kind of stands out, but I found very believable, which if you're watching something, you, you want to believe the performance. I believed his reaction, his mannerisms in that scene at the border where he backs up. In the uh, film comment podcast, Mina Cavani, the actress who plays Zara, did talk a little bit about how he works with actors and what he expects from actors. And she kind of mentioned that he had expressed that casting the right person, you know, gets you, I think she says 70% of the performance or whatever. That's not necessarily an uncommon thing to hear. I mean, I think filmmakers talk about how important casting is. And if you cast the right person, your job on set is much easier. But in this case, she was saying it as if, and also adding that he, he casts and then expects that person to just play themselves or be themselves, not to act, but just be, you know, and she also commented that although people say it seems like it's improvised or something, that everything is scripted. You are saying lines that are written, but you're saying them as yourself. I think that from the beginning when he's choosing his actor, He's choosing the actors who are very, very close to their character. I remember that his assistant, he told me that uh, 70% of the role is already there by choosing you. I think that he hates playing actors acting, actually. So you should should not acting, actually. (laughs) You should just uh, be yourself. 
Yeah, I yeah. think that you know what? Honestly, I think that if I didn't have this experience of exile uh, of eight years behind me and ten years being living out of my country, I think that I couldn't get that much profound the character. In this case, Jafar Panahi is playing Jafar Panahi, you know, using this concept. He's not just playing himself, but he's playing himself by just being himself. But that's what's interesting is like if you're being yourself and you're also quote unquote reenacting events from your life or events very close to things you've experienced, you could imagine that those would be sort of very emotional for you. There would be some sort of emotional baggage that comes with those scenes. But yet he resists that urge to show that in his performance. He stays very sort of reserved and stoic. It's, I guess, pretty impressive that it doesn't get too performative. I'll agree with that. And regarding Panahi giving a natural performance, I started watching this for the second time in preparation of this podcast. My wife sat down. It was after the initial scene of the film within the film. Her first thought was, oh, I didn't know that this was a documentary. The presentation of the film, but also Panahi's presentation of himself really did kind of lend itself to that style to the point that, yeah, you know, somebody not having context, just kind of jumping into it might have that belief. And I kind of found that interesting as far as how those tied together. I just think it's worth noting, and I really appreciated it, that there's no non-diegetic music, no score. There is music in the film when you see or hear people playing. You know, there's that scene around the table in which they're singing and in the film within the film. There's moments where music fills the scenes, but there's no musical score. Everything sort of exists in the world, and I guess in a way that kind of goes to the documentary style, although documentaries do frequently have music. But the most striking example of this or moment of this is the end of the film. You know, a film that is using all the tools of cinema and is very sort of cinematic. They'll use music not only to elicit an emotion from the viewer but you know that music comes up because the credits are about to roll you know the end of the film is coming and the music is going to fill those credits but you know this film this sort of soundscape gets heightened you mentioned it with like the dogs barking and everything but the sound of those dogs and the environment that's what plays over the entire credits There's no music. It could be, you know, 
going to the reality, but it, I think it also implies this continuation of the story we had just watched, you know, the way it's not really over. Putting a score or music underneath the credits would probably take away from the true messaging of the film. And there's something that unsettling nature to the dogs barking and just sort of that natural noises and sounds that create almost like a sense of danger. And I think just in general, you know, I think Panahi is a truly compassionate filmmaker, but I do think he does avoid sentimentalizing the characters and the situations. Music is a way that filmmakers frequently sort of like over sentimentalize a moment because music is so powerful at sort of creating a feeling or an emotion. And by avoiding that, he is presenting it as close to reality as I guess, you know, we possibly can get within the the medium of film, potentially, you know, I don't, there's an argument there, but. One of the things that I found really interesting as I was preparing for this episode, on the Criterion channel, there was this short, like, 18 to 20 minute discussion with Raman Barani, where he discusses No Bears. Just a couple, like, little highlights, because I, I do suggest everybody go and watch this discussion. Talked a little bit about the struggles of being a filmmaker and being prevented from making his art. Talks about Panahi's like history in Iranian cinema. He also shares a story of how Panahi allegedly smuggled one of his films out of the country. What do you have to share with our listeners? I would recommend, uh, so there's a collection of books called Conversations with Filmmakers. There is a Jafar Panahi interviews in that series. I would recommend that. Of course, it was published in, I think, 2019, so it is not relevant to No Bears. But I would recommend it because, and I'll get to this in a little bit, I do think he is a uh, talented filmmaker worth watching and worth studying. The Film Comment podcast did an interview with Mina Cavani, the actress who plays Zara. They discuss many topics, starting with sort of her story. She's from Iran, her story of, of leaving Iran and living in exile. There was a moment I thought was interesting. She made the decision to cry during that final monologue. Panahi had told her not to cry during that when scene. I, the first take that I um, made from this monologue of Zara, I was crying. And suddenly, Mr. Panahi, he told me, hey, Mina, Zara, she's a strong woman. I want to show you a strong woman. Don't be, don't be weak. Uh, I, 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 Zara, she's a fighter. She's a, she's a young, strong woman. And so... You know, of course, I was very touched about that. And of course, much more touched when I saw what's happened to in Iran and all the young Iranian women, when you see that as it's like that he wants it already to showing this image to the world, uh, that that mm -hmm. is the image of the Iranian woman. What he was trying to convey, and I think they get into this a little bit, is that he feels maybe partly obligated to show or send a certain message about what Iranian women are like. And so he wanted to represent Iranian women as not victims necessarily, but strong, powerful, capable women. Certainly the other interesting part is her talking about how she's become sort of the person responsible for representing this film 
at film festivals and and at screenings and sort of in interviews and all of this because you know specifically Banahi is you know was imprisoned at the time but also you know she's living in exile working in exile and as a result you know she's been sort of like the spokesperson and and the representative for this film which i think is interesting because she doesn't it doesn't seem like she really wanted that position but it sort of fell on her so i think certainly worth the time to listen to that why don't you uh, give us your takeaways, general takeaways, takeaways as a filmmaker? I think No Bears and the other things I've started to explore uh, with Panahi has just sort of reinforced this idea that that he really is one of the best filmmakers working today, I think. And I say that acknowledging that there's so much of his work I haven't seen. He's able to take a simple, understated story, but just pack it with so much meaning and so many different ideas um, and like these beautifully crafted metaphors that don't feel forced. So my biggest takeaway from this is that I need to explore his filmography more. And as a filmmaker, I think it's it's also reinforced this idea that film can and should be about exploring questions that the filmmaker has or is struggling with. This idea of, is it better to stay? Or is it better to leave? Is it worth making films? Are the benefits outweighing the negatives? All these sort of questions you're struggling with, use, you can use film to explore these ideas and you don't necessarily need to have the answers. It's about the exploration. What about you, Joe? I think my big takeaway from this one is really just like filmmaker and artist-based. We'll include the link in the show notes, but I found great inspiration from Panahi's acceptance speech at the Miami Film Festival. Panahi gave this acceptance speech while he was in prison, a very common like statement that's been made regarding Panahi is banning a filmmaker from making a film is equivalent to a death sentence. And I agree with that. And not to discredit the difficulties or challenges, Jafar Panahi is making it happen with an entire government working against him, with a ban that could result in him being imprisoned in a country that condones torture. He's doing this and he's making films. And it shows like that love for it. Part of it is like a platform for him to support the causes and the things that he believes in. At the same time, I mean, it's still his art. And to have that dedication to your art your craft. You can't do anything but respect him for that. He's doing so with fewer resources than I think most people have at their disposal. And it almost feels disrespectful when I think about frustrations that maybe I have as a filmmaker, because I still have that freedom to go and do. And the only issue or person standing in, in the way is me. In that regard, I do view what Panahi did with No Bears and his other band work that is now on my radar. But I actually find a significant degree of inspiration, much as I did with After Sun. Here's the tough question. Would you recommend No Bears and to whom would you recommend it? Have we ever said that we wouldn't recommend something? 
No, even Metropolis, which is my least favorite film we've discussed. I said, well, there's stuff to take away from it. I, I guess, you know, even with Hard Ticket to Hawaii, I said, well, if you're if you're into this thing, yeah, it's worth watching. But I could say that about anything. So it made me realize like what I just said was meaningless because it's like, if you're into superhero movies, I would recommend The Avengers. It doesn't mean I actually think it's worth seeing. <laughs> it just means, you know, for somebody it is. So I don't know. Just, let's just do this and we'll talk about this another time. Would I recommend? Yeah, I would. I was looking forward to this one. It didn't disappoint it surprisingly did not end up being my top film of 2022. I think everybody knows what film got that award, but I would say that this is probably my my second favorite film of 22. I do feel like if you're not into foreign language films, this one may not be for you, but I'd still encourage you to go give it a try because I think that there's enough there to warrant a watch. I would recommend it to world cinema fans. I feel like Abbas Kurastami gets a lot of attention in this sort of art house world cinema sort of category with good reason, but because Jafar Panahi is so similar in so many ways, I would say if you are an Abbas Kurastami fan, that Jafar Panahi is a good way to experience other Iranian filmmakers, sort of a gateway. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm so happy to be at least me be able to be here and sharing with you some words, if you don't mind. I'm so happy to be here today, but sad that Jafar cannot be with me and with us. I know we are all thinking of him. I would like to thank the film at Lincoln Center for inviting No Bears to the New York Film Festival. We also thank all of the film festivals around the world that continue to support this film and the cause of artistic freedom. I also personally thank the film society as well as the GC Buter, Janice and Sideshow for making it possible for me to be here introducing the movie to you. The deeply human message of No Bears is even more urgent now after the incarceration of Jafar Panahi their circumstances surrounding the death of Mahsa Amini and the current protest in Iran and throughout the world. Jafar wrote the following words from prison. We are all filmmakers. We are part of Iranian independent cinema. For us to live is to create. We create works that are not commissioned. Therefore, those in power see us as criminals. Independent cinema reflects its own times. It draws inspiration from society and cannot be indifferent to it. The history of Iranian cinema witnesses the constant and active presence of independent directors who have struggled to push back censorship and to ensure the survival of this art. While on this path, some were banned from making films, others were forced into exile or reduced to isolation, and yet the hope of creating again is a reason for existence. 
no matter where, when, or under what circumstances. An independent filmmaker is either creating or thinking about creation. We are filmmakers, independent ones. Thank you. Your pick for our next episode? Werner Herzog's Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Why did I choose this? It was a combination of two things. Under the impression that Herzog is a maybe a blind blinder spot for you, I kind of wanted to discuss that. This film features Klaus Kinski, which I feel like is maybe a blinder spot for you, but also a big one is we did talk about the film briefly during our Edward Yang episode because it is the film that he cites as getting him back into filmmaking after dropping out of film school and kind of giving it up. You know, I think it's a good film. I have seen it before. When you put this one on the docket, the Edward Yang element immediately jumped to mind and the importance that this film has had on him. All right. So thank you for listening to our discussion of Jafar Panahi's No Bears. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with someone who might enjoy it. If you want to let us know whether you agree or disagree with our opinions on the film, or if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, you can email us at seambyseampodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow us on Letterboxd, I can be found at letterboxd.com slash Justin Johnson. Joe can be found at letterboxd.com slash jrlefebvre83. Links will be in the description. And join us next time for our discussion of Werner Herzog's Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Look, you don't have to look at the set anymore. I mean, the movie's over. Your movie was over. That's what you said. There's nothing going on in movies right now. Great movie, huh? So refreshing to see something like this after all these cop movies. Have you seen a lot of movies here? What are you so crazy about movies for? Obviously, they don't watch enough movies. That's part of your problem, you know. You haven't seen enough movies. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. Do you have any experience in motion pictures? Quite a bit of experience. I'm an active renter at Blockbuster. I love the fact that you did all this work. I think it will help you later, but not on this movie. Sorry, can we cut? <laughs> Still rolling. You know what? No, not still rolling. Cut, 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 cut. Cut! And cut! That great work, everybody. That's a wrap.